back at it. Hey, I wanted to say a few quick words about books, okay? Just quick and fast, okay? So these are back at the book table. I'm going to, I have a square thing, a little square uh, reader, card reader. Uh, you can tell I've done this a lot. And uh, I'll, be, I'll be swiping cards at the end of the morning sessions. This is Reenchanting Humanity. This is a theology of humanity, very much like what we were talking about in the first session. Um, if you want a 400-page mm, overview of these kind of things, that's a biblical doctrine. Did I just sell you or not sell you? Um, <laughs> that, that's a book that... Um, We'll go a lot deeper into these subjects, has a lot of footnotes, has a lot of historical citations, has a lot of exegetical discussion. We're just dipping our toes into these matters, of course. So that's, uh, that's Reenchanting Humanity. Then I, I've done a trilogy. I saw uh, Colin had quotes from Gavin Peacock on the slides. Gavin Peacock and I co-wrote these three short, look, look, a lot shorter. <laughs> okay, not 400 pages, like 150 pages. Um, this one's on homosexuality, this one's on lust, and this one's on transgenderism. And so if you wanted a short resource, practical, readable, not really scholarly at the, at the level where it's going to be inaccessible prose, those three books that we co-wrote are trying to help Christians think through these very hot-button issues. We've been talking about them already in the conference, but if you want uh, book resources, I've got like a little book deal figured out where if you get all four books, you can get them for a lot of money off of the Amazon price. So uh, I think it's four for 50. So uh, anyway, that's, uh, that's a quick word about the books. My, my prayer with Gavin with the trilogy is that these books will equip Christians um, to give good answers to what's transpiring in our culture and lead people out of the darkness of sin and into the light of Jesus Christ. So that's, that's our prayer uh, with that trilogy. And that's my hope for all four books. So uh, whatever I don't sell, I have to take home uh, or take to Abilene next week, right? Okay, yes. So uh, I need to sell some books, okay? My wife, my wife is going to be like, why did you buy all these books? And she's, she's going to be, she's going to have some justification there. All right, uh, let's think together this morning in our first session about biblical womanhood. Uh, we talked last night about biblical manhood. As I set the stage for this, I think of a movie from several years ago where a girl found herself in a difficult situation and was talking with her father. And her father said to this young woman, I thought that you were the kind of girl who wouldn't get into this sort of trouble. And this young woman says back to him in this film, I guess I don't know what kind of girl I am. It was the kind of moment that reminds me of what we were talking about with men last night that many young women, just like many young men, don't know what it is to be a woman. They don't know what they're aiming at. They don't know what success or faithfulness looks like as a biblical woman. And so we have a great need not to let our daughters be raised in secular terms and have the culture educate our daughters and the rising generation but we need to plug in and train our girls, train young women what it is to be a biblical woman. I, I believe, friends, that these two responsibilities, training young men and training young women, are really at the forefront of Christian discipleship today. I don't think that these are just sort of ancillary exterior matters that, yeah, sure, a few churches might be interested in that. 
to be a Christian disciple is either to be a godly man or a godly woman. It is of vital importance, therefore, that we talk through just what we are after with biblical manhood and biblical womanhood. Now, the man, as we saw last night, I'm going to give you some intro comments, and then I'm going to give you six uh, takeaways of biblical womanhood throughout the scripture, okay? So this is just framing material, then I'll give you six points to try to synthesize what the Bible teaches about womanhood. The man, as we saw last night, was placed in the garden to work it and keep it in Genesis 2.15, and in verse 17 of Genesis 2, he was commanded not to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die, verse 17. Now, following on that, we learn two very important principles in Genesis 2. We learn in verse 18, and you're free to turn there if you'd like, but I'm just kind of moving rapid fire through the text. We learn in verse 18 that it is not good for the man to be alone. So the first not good reality, the only not good reality of Eden pre-fall is that the man is alone. Uh, we shouldn't understand that, of course, in terms of there being any sin or any badness in Eden. God has made Eden, but we should understand that even in paradisical Eden, the man being alone is a significant reality and is identified as not good. That tells us something formative, very formative for understanding God's desire for marriage to take place and families to be formed. Let me say a quick word here. It's not that every Christian is going to get married. Okay, We know from 1 Corinthians 7 and other passages that we can honor God in a profound way as a single man or a single woman. We know that Paul, at least for a significant portion of his life, is single. We know that Jesus, in natural terms, is single, of course. So we, we never want to convey that being a Christian and a really faithful Christian equals getting married. So let that be said. You need to be a biblical man, you need to be a biblical woman, whether or not you have a ring on your finger. You do not become a biblical man or a biblical woman when a ring is placed on your finger. You do not cease to be a biblical man or a biblical woman if a ring is ever taken off your finger, okay? So let that be said and believed. Nonetheless, God's design for most of us is that we not be alone. It's the original blueprint of God for humanity in the garden to such an extent that pre-fall, it's not good for Adam to be alone. It's not the state the Lord wants Adam in. He wants him married and forming a family. Family formation is of essential importance to glorifying God. Most Christians should pursue marriage most Christians, as God allows and leads, should do all they can to form a family to the glory of God. There is no shame, though, if you are praying for this, you desire this, you want this from Scripture, and God, in his sovereign choosing, does not bring it into your life. We're, we're again, not indicating that there's condemnation for you. You should not hear that. I pray you wouldn't from me or other teachers of a complementarian kind. Nonetheless, this is the design of God. This is the plan of God. The Lord saw the need, verse 18, to make a helper, a helper, which is a very interesting word, is there in the Hebrew, fit for him. 
Ezer Konegdo in the Hebrew, a helper fit for him or corresponding to him. So this tells us a tremendous amount about womanly identity, that the woman is first identified as a helper. Now, let me say a word here as well. Nobody or very few people in 21st century America, the 21st century West, wants to be on the cover of Helper magazine. <laughs> very few people put on their CV or in their online bio, Helper. Almost nobody out there on Twitter or TikTok uh, or Choose It, it puts Helper corresponding to him <laughs> in their profile. This is not the drift of our culture. We want to be on the cover of what? Forbes. We want to be on the cover of uh, Inc. We want to be on the cover of Fast Company or some cool magazine like these. We don't want to be a helper. Just using that term has a negative connotation for lots of people in modern American culture. But to be a helper in the Bible is an exalted reality. Here again, friends, counter-cultural territory. The Bible's word is different than a fallen culture's word. There's always going to be differences. This is one of them with our culture. Nobody wants to help. People want to lead. People want to lean in. People want to use their gifts and talents. They don't want to be in the home helping. They don't want to be anonymous. They don't want to be doing drudgery. They want to be doing exciting things. You want to list all the places you've traveled on your social media. Who wants to be a helper to a man specifically? I mean, honestly, what college and university out there in a secular sense is in any sense communicating the dignity of helping? You know who else is going to take on this title of helper throughout the scripture? God. God will be called helper. He will call himself helper of his people elsewhere in the Old Testament. This title is divine. What will Jesus do actionally when he comes to earth? What will he do just before he is crucified? to help his people. It's pretty significant to atone for their sin. That's a helping act, if there ever was one. Just before that, what will he do? He will wash their feet, won't he? Not, not in a kind of like, these feet are right in a great place. This is first century feet. This is wearing sandals. This is a grubby undertaking for a man to do with his disciples. But he will signify in so doing that to help to serve, right? That's the term that's going to be used there in that context. To serve, again, is nothing less than divine. Now, Christian women are going to face different gray areas and questions about vocation and calling and all these sorts of, we can have a very lively discussion about that and try to provide what counsel we can. Let's just note that being a helper is not a bad thing in the biblical mind. We're in we're in countercultural territory where God, from the start, pre-fall in Eden, identifies the woman as helper, and that's not a bad thing. It's that being a helper indicates that Eve is bringing strengths to the marriage, actually, that Adam doesn't bring. 
It's the opposite of the way it's portrayed. You understand? It's the opposite. This isn't a negative title. Oh, it's too bad. In the Old Testament, there used to be this linkage of womanhood with helping, but we've, sh we've shed that now. We're, we're beyond that. We're past that. We don't want to say that in our churches. No. It's the opposite of what people think. It's that if she is a helper, she is bringing a lot to this relationship because it's not good for him to be alone. He needs a helper. I've said before that it's almost as if the Lord looks at Adam and goes, dude, you need help. <laughs> and he does, not because he's inferior or an idiot or a goofball, but because if they're going to carry out this dominion mandate that we were talking briefly about last night of filling the earth, subduing it, ruling it, yes, that's going to involve procreation, and that's going to take marriage. So there's a lot she's bringing to the table he cannot accomplish on his own, pre-fall, before sin. This is how the Lord made things. He made it such that there would be this complementary pairing of man and woman. And the woman would see herself without any sin working into the mix as the helper of the man. As being there to, to help him in his task of subduing, ruling, and taking dominion of all the creation. She is the only helper fit for him. The animals are not fit for him. The birds are not fit for him. She, on the other hand, is made from him. She is made from the man, as we talked about last night, from his rib in verses 20 and 21, and then she is brought to him in Genesis 2, and in verse 23, the man names her, showing again his headship, his authority in the home. She is Isha in the Hebrew from Ish. She is made from him, she is given a name by him, and he exalts in her. This is a beautiful, holy picture of God's design for man and woman. It, it shows us that the man reverences and exalts in the gift of the woman. This is what Christian marriage is aiming at. This is what families are seeking to display is this easy to do in a post-Genesis 3 world? No, it's not. But this is God's beautiful and holy design that there would be love, that two would come together and become one flesh at the end of Genesis 2. The blueprint then for the human race is, as I say, marriage. This is not because God looks down on single people. This is because marriage is a major part of how we take dominion of the earth. We fill the earth. The man and the woman are called to the joyful vocation of procreation and child raising. This is a key part of faithfulness to the original design of God. The Lord wants his image bearers to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth with more little image bearers. So the Lord loves marriage, by which I mean one man, one woman, covenantally for life. The Lord loves life. The Lord loves life. He creates life. He makes it so that the woman uniquely can nurture and bear life. The Lord loves children. He loves children. They're his idea. We're in a society that wants to be childless, where couples increasingly are making decisions. Uh, Newsweek and other sources tell us to be childless for the duration of their marriage. The Lord loves children. He loves the home that is receptive to children. How does this all play out? How does this plan click into place? It plays out by a man taking leadership. He leaves father and mother, as we said. He holds fast to his wife. They become one flesh in marital intimacy. 
and then children, Lord willing, are brought along. All of this then plays out in this beautiful design of God that we call complementary. We, we group it under the heading complementarity. The sexes being made as image bearers equally before God and yet having distinct identities and distinct roles for God's glory. This is a little picture, actually, this, this family that is created on earth of the Holy Trinity, Father, Son, and Spirit dwelling together from all eternity past in perfect union and harmony. Though the, the Trinity, the persons of the Trinity, one God, three persons, are one God, they're each, each God, they nonetheless are three persons, Father, Son, and Spirit. So there is unity, one God, but there is also distinctiveness, three persons. They're not the same person. They are distinct persons, and that is not a bad thing. That is a beautiful thing. That's how Christians can account for unity in diversity. A woman, therefore, all of this to say, does not have the responsibility to win a man's hand in marriage. The man has the responsibility to do this. We're seeing in Genesis 2 how the woman's disposition looks. She doesn't have the same role as the man, according to the end of Genesis 2. This is because the Lord wants men to grow up and mature and take responsibility and step forward and courage. Here's the deal. It's scary to try to win a woman's hand, a woman's heart. You might not think it is, ladies, but it is. It's a big deal. But this is the good plan of God, that a man would put it all on the line and step out and try as God would allow and lead to win a woman's heart. We're in a context now where the average age of marriage keeps getting bumped up and up and up. It used to be roughly 21 and 20, male, female. Now it's pushing into the 30s, 30 and 28. Uh, last, I think I looked for men and then for women. There's a lot to say there and we're not in a hurry to try to get children or people in the church married off, but suffice it to say, I think we have a problem on two counts. I think we have a problem with men who don't want to take responsibility or who haven't been trained to take responsibility. And I think we have a problem with women who in some cases have very high standards and, and haven't been trained that seeing marriage as their call is a good thing. And so what's happening is we're having a kind of nuclear standoff of the young sexes, even in evangelical settings. Obviously, there are individual cases that need elder care and leadership and these sorts of things, so let that be said. But in general terms, observing patterns in secular society and then also in the church, we have this kind of standoff where in too many cases, men are not stepping out to win a woman's heart, and in too many cases, women are not going with a guy. They're not giving the guy the opportunity, the chance. It's not a good situation on either side. Guys, you don't, if you're called to marriage, you don't want to languish in a kind of extended high school and collegial state for the next 10 to 15 years of your life. It's not good for you to be alone, and you shouldn't pursue that if you're called to marriage. Most men are. Ladies, if you're called to marriage, it's not good for you to have that extra 10 to 15 years, too, of just being alone. If a guy steps up and seeks to win your heart and he loves the Lord and, and you can make this work and it's a fit in different ways, go for it. Let's not, let's not complexify this to an impossible degree such that both sexes are struggling, struggling with purity, 
struggling with loneliness and isolation, not creating families. There's all sorts of things to say about what happens if you delay marriage into your 30s, having children later in life. The, honestly, the risks for birth defects go way up, these sorts of things. We don't want to scare anyone. We just want to say the culture isn't leading well here. It's not leading well. It's not a good plan to delay these things indefinitely. You have your own situation. You can't press a button and change American culture and church culture. Don't hear me as, as putting that pressure upon you. But you can pray and do your part to go back to this original good design. It's not good for a man to be alone. And it's not good for a woman to languish without a man when she is called to marriage. So both sides, not one or the other. Sometimes evangelicals torch men, for example, for not stepping up. Well, men need a call to maturity, straight up. Genesis 2, 24 and 25 is a call to maturity. But women need the same call. Women can't make this so difficult that a man can't win their heart. There's a lot to say here. There's a lot of nuance, as I said. But let's, let's try to push back against the drift of secularism that has both sexes languishing through the 20s and the 30s, not having a plan, not knowing where they're going, just basically struggling a lot, struggling tremendously with purity, I might add, just tremendously. And you can lose your soul over struggling for purity. It's, it's a very serious thing. It, it doesn't solve everything to get married, but there's a goodness to God's design that we can't miss here. All right, today, our culture says a different word than the things that we have been lining out. We know this because if we move ahead to Genesis 3.16, this will be my final text that I consider, and then some biblical principles. If we move ahead to Genesis 3.16, this is following the eating of the forbidden fruit, yes? The woman receives her share of the sentence of judgment for sin. Genesis 3.16, to the woman he said, I will surely multiply your pain and childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. What is taking place here is that the woman's primary role in life is, is under the curse now. It's under the sentence of judgment. The woman was always going to be the one who bore children. So she doesn't become a childbearer in the fall, you understand, or in this sentence. And the woman was always going to be led by the man. That doesn't debut right here in Genesis 3.16. He was created first. Paul is going to tell us in 1 Timothy 2, 9 to 15, that his being created first is called creation order. That's the term we use here. Creation order means that he has headship. So it's not, again, just that he's, oh, he happens to be first by a little bit and then she's second. No, it means something. It means that a, a woman should not teach a man in the church context. So that's something very significant. No, the man was always called to be her head, her, her leader, her authority in the home, but now she's going to fight that. Now there's going to be conflict over leadership in the home. Now she's not going to want to submit to him. Now it's going to be a battle. He's not going to lead her well as a result of his sin, and she's not going to want to receive his leadership as a result of her sin. So both the sexes feel the weight of the fall, and God sentences. I mean, this is significant stuff, isn't it? 
God sentences the human race to have these conflictual dynamics play out for the rest of history until Jesus makes things right. That's a significant reality. You see, the fall isn't what we often say it is. You put it on the flannel graph, it's a little apple. They ate the apple, they shouldn't have eaten the apple or whatever. The fall is actually Satan undermining all the dynamics of the home that God has set up. It's Satan undermining male headship, male leadership. It's Satan going to the woman in the form of the serpent and getting her to lead her husband, and that's what he does in Genesis 3. She gives him the fruit to eat. As I said last night, he is standing passively by. He's not protecting her. He's not leading her. He's not stepping up. He's not rebuking what is coming into his home. There's maybe a little corollary there for us in a modern sense with what's coming through the TV or what's coming through the tablet or what's coming through the phone in our homes. Are, are we standing guard over that or are we just letting it passively come in? Do we have any sense for what our kids are watching? So the man fails in his role. The woman takes the man's role in the eating of the forbidden fruit. Satan has fomented all of this. Satan is trying to destroy the order that God has made. And he's very successful in his attack. And these dynamics of, of, of cursing upon the home play out for the rest of human history. It's not just that we become sinners deserving of eternal damnation in eating the forbidden fruit. We do. That's significant enough. It's also, though, that the fall brings about a sentence of judgment specifically on the male-female dynamics in the home. Now, the woman has a desire contrary to her husband, and he is going to punch back and rule over her. All this means that there is going to be, there's going to be conflict in marriage as a man seeks to lead, a woman undermines him, the man, again, doesn't respond to that in a godly way. Why say all this? Well, first of all, because it's biblical, and we need to know what the Bible teaches us about the world and how it functions. Second, because we need to know that this is very much the drift of our culture. Women are not only said that they could lead in the home, women are absolutely encouraged to rule over men in the home and in every sphere. And this violates, hear me clearly, this violates creation order. This is not the way God made it to be. God made the man to lead in his home. So if we have a movement like modern feminism, training girls from every corner, from every angle, to rebel against manly authority and see men leading them as a bad thing, that plays in perfectly with fallen cursed dynamics. This is where we are. This is the setting we're in. Men are encouraged, as I said last night, to lean back and be passive and let their wives lead. And women are absolutely encouraged to take a man's role and provide and lead the family and even protect the family. Now, increasingly, women go to war and fight our battles in America, for example, and men stay home and raise the children. Men increasingly today embrace what's called the dad-mom role, where the woman goes to work and provides for the family, maybe because she can make more money than the man, and the man stays home. This is an inversion, a rejection, a rebellion against the biblical design. And where people buy into this system, there will be chaos, and there will be disorder, and there will not be obedience to God, and thus flourishing. 
So how do we build back when the wind is in our face? We're saying some strong things here this morning, I admit. These are very, again, countercultural things. But how, how do we rebuild in the ashes? We do six things, I think. We, we focus on six truths, and we'll go rapid fire through these. First, we have to remember that the sexes are made by God. That's our first of six. The sexes are made by God. I have said this already, but we need to repeat it. There is such a thing as womanhood because God made it. God made womanhood. Womanhood is an evolutionary process. Womanhood isn't something that a culture defines, and other cultures are free to disagree. The Bible defines the essence of womanhood. And that term, helper, we'll say more about this in a minute, is huge for understanding womanly identity. Our culture denies that there is an essence of womanhood. Our culture says, sure, you can have, I don't know, female body, female anatomy, but that means nothing. It doesn't tell you anything about who a woman actually is. And again, here, we have to go in completely the opposite direction and say, no, actually, a womanly body tells you you are a woman and actually tells you much about who you are called to be as God would lead you. It tells you that you can nurture and bear life. A man cannot do this. There is tremendous wisdom and, and, and God's design written into our bodies, body of a man, body of a woman. These things are not incidental. These things matter greatly. God is signaling to women who they are and can be as he leads by virtue of how he has formed them and made them. Second, the woman's identity, as we have spelled out, is that of a helper. It's that of a helper. This has not gone away. This isn't erased, in other words, from Christian theology. This doesn't mean that every woman will be married. doesn't mean that every woman should submit to every man. That's not what we're arguing. It does mean that there is a beautiful symmetry in the natures of man and woman. The essence of womanhood is found here. The woman is a helper in a way the man is not. The man is not called the helper of his wife. And you need to pay attention in Scripture to who is called what and what terms are used where. You need to be a detail-oriented biblical reader. You need to read the clauses and read the phrases and read the actual individual words and see what glory and weight they bear, because they do. In being called an Azair, the woman is given an identity, and a woman will find flourishing and happiness and meaning and fulfillment not when she rejects the biblical identity, but when she embraces it. Are there gray areas in sorting this out? There absolutely are. There are for different seasons of life. There are for different callings. Let that be said. Nonetheless, in trying to speak clearly and lay out as best we can quickly, the just as the man is called to be a worker and a protector and a leader, so the woman is called to be a helper and a nurturer and a submissive partner and the very bearer of life. Think about that. Think about how exalted a role that is, that a woman is able to bear life, to nurture a human existence in her womb, and then sustain that life when the child is young. That is a beautiful reality. Truly, for most women, that is the most significant thing they will do. That is not what our culture teaches you, but I don't care. It's true. 
It's not because the rest of your life doesn't matter. Not at all. Live every minute for the glory of God. It is because this is such a significant reality. It is such a big deal to have a child and nurture a child and raise a child and disciple children in the context of the home. This is so meaningful. It matters so much. It doesn't feel that way, does it? It feels a lot of days like it is just a grind, like it's anonymous, like raising children and making a home, like this doesn't matter at all. This is just something that Christians have said is important. You know, you look at all your peers, all your fellow graduates from high school and college, look at the high-flown, high-flying things they're doing. That matters. If only I had a, a six-figure paycheck, then I'd really be counting. If only I was being profiled by some magazine or some website, then my life would count. No, it counts immensely to bear children and raise them to know Jesus Christ as their Savior. In doing so, women, mothers, are shepherding their children hour by grinding hour to everlasting glory. That matters infinitely. God sees all of it. God sees every night you get up three times to feed the baby. God sees every day where all you end up doing is walking around the neighborhood very slowly with a one-year-old. God sees the days when you're homeschooling and you answer roughly 779 questions. God sees the days where you try to plug in with your little boy and play football with him, even though you have no idea the rules that he's calling on you at all times. God sees all the meals you make and all the, all the ways you serve your family that no one rewards and no one comes in and lauds and celebrates. God sees it. God sees it all. You will be rewarded for it. He doesn't just see it. Oh, neat, he sees it. He will reward it. He will reward it all in glory. None of it. Not one second escapes divine notice. Everything you do for God is seen by God. Everything. Everything matters. Every second matters. So a woman who is dedicated to the things of God and who finds in the role of helper in various ways a calling from heaven itself is doing well and will be rewarded and should not give a second solitary thought to what secular culture says about her calling. Just as the man is called to be a worker protector and leader, so the woman is called to be a helper, submissive partner, Ephesians 5, 22 to 33, nurturer and the bearer of life. Third, godly women have plenty to do in Scripture. Godly women have plenty to do. Our third point I want to make just as, our, as we're kind of overviewing biblical womanhood at rapid fire pace. You see this in Proverbs 31, the famous chapter of the Bible, for example. Let me just go through a few things quickly under this third point that the woman of God, the godly woman does, according to Proverbs 31. She works hard, verse 15. Proverbs 31, she rises while it is yet night and provides food for her household and portions for her maidens. This is something that's very much demeaned today to, for a woman to take time to make food, right? Just buy something microwavable, get takeout, these sorts of things. There's times to do that. But note throughout scripture just how 
blessed a family is when a woman does this, when she makes food for her family. Again, does anyone, does anyone give you a medal for that? Not usually, right? But the scripture honors the woman who does this. She rises while it is night, provides food not only for her husband and kids, for her household, for her maidens, for those who help her in the home. She makes wise decisions. Verse 16, she considers a field and buys it. With the fruit of her hand, she plants a vineyard. She is a wise woman. She even in this sense has a certain shrewd business sense, which is fascinating. She is a wise woman who is not scared of getting her hands dirty in the world. She, in literal terms, she plants a vineyard. Verse 22, her home is a home of beauty and refinement. She makes bed coverings for herself. For herself. Her clothing is fine linen and purple, verse 22 says. So uh, this, this is interesting as well. Fine linen and purple would not have been cheap. So this is a woman, of, as I say, of beauty and refinement. She doesn't think that um, it's wrong for, for the home to be adorned and nicely furnished, okay? Choose your term. This is actually a blessing to her, I assume, and to her family beyond. This is, she's, she's a homemaker. She makes a beautiful home for her family. Not something that everybody, you know, applauds you when you walk into your home on the way back from Target today, I, I admit. But something that mat it matters, it's Bible. It's not me, I'm not making this up. Complementarians haven't created this. This is Bible. Verse 25, we see her character. Strength and dignity are her clothing. She laughs at the time to come. She is a woman of God. She fears the Lord. She doesn't fear the earth. She doesn't fear the world. She doesn't care what the world thinks. She cares what God thinks. And she is clothed in strength and dignity. She teaches her children, verse 26. She opens her mouth with wisdom, and the teaching of kindness is on her tongue. Line upon line, hour upon hour, day upon day. She opens her mouth, and wisdom comes out. Not because she is so great in and of herself, of course, because God has chosen her for himself and renewed her and redeemed her, and now she is able to, to bless others around her and teach kindness to others. Last thing I'll note, she stands out in a world addicted to only one kind of beauty. Verse 30, charm is deceitful and beauty is vain, but a woman who fears the Lord is to be praised. This woman shines. This way of life stands out. It's evangelistic. It's doxological, worthy of praise. A woman who fears the Lord is to be praised. A godly woman stands out like the sun at midday. The, this godly woman is going to be tempted to think, this doesn't matter, this isn't significant, no one sees this, these kind of things. And the opposite is true. She stands out like the sun. Those around her, rise up, her husband leading the way, and call her blessed. So there is tremendous. You, you want to talk about power and influence, topics that a lot of Americans want to talk about. There is tremendous, ironically, power and influence in godly womanhood, in biblical womanhood. Fourth truth we need to cover. 
Moving ahead to the New Testament, the woman of God respects and submits to her husband. She respects and submits to her husband. Looking at Ephesians 5, verses 22 to 24. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Submission as depicted here is not earned. It's an all-of-life reality. Wives should submit in everything to their husbands, verse 24. Of course, we're, we're not understanding Paul to be saying, following a husband into sin. Never. A woman should never do that. And if a husband is seeking to do that with a woman, with his wife, then that wife should engage the elders of the local church and bring them into this situation, and God willing, this, this will be sorted out. This uh, ungodly pattern will, will be sorted out. We're not talking, of course, about any time there's any kind of conflict or sin in the home. We're talking here about uh, a pattern of sin in particular uh, with regard to a husband. We don't want to lose, though, the biblical principle with the caveats and the nuances and the qualifications. And that's the danger. That's the danger, that we would talk about submission and we'd then follow it up with a joke or something like this, or we'd soften it and we'd make it something that it's not. Don't soften what Scripture has made concrete and firm. Scripture calls for wives to submit to their own husband as to the Lord, as to the Lord. Here again, a high calling, isn't it? A hard calling. Wives submit to an imperfect, thoroughly in process of becoming a more godly Christian man? Absolutely. That's the call. The call in Christian marriage is that we would be unique. It's not that we would be like the world. There's nothing worldly about this. There's, we're not called to show how close to the world Christian marriage is and therefore how respectable and reasonable Christianity is. We're called to stand out. God wants us to be unique. It seems like everybody today in the church wants to be just like the world, but with a Jesus twist at the end. And the scripture wants us to stand out and be set apart and be holy and be distinct and be different. Just what we fear, just what we're desperate to avoid. Don't think of me as distinct from you. Don't think of me as different. Don't think of our marriage as any different from yours. No, Christian marriage is altogether different because it's patterned after Christ and the church. It's patterned after Christ the head who lays his life down for his bride in love, self-sacrificial love, and it's patterned after the church submitting to Christ, following the authority of Christ in the same way. This is the call of Christian marriage. Christian marriage is a picture of the gospel of grace. It's a living demonstration of gospel love and the reality of the Savior washing his bride. Submission is no small thing, is it? Submission is actually a military term. Hupotasso in the Greek, it means to bring yourself under holistic self-control, to absolutely be under control in this kind of context, which means that a woman who is submitting is not turning her brain off and blindly following. It means that she is under control and therefore she's under his leadership. 
She's not fighting against him. She's, her desire is not to rule him, as in Genesis 3.16. Her desire is to follow him, not because she's brainless, but because she's under control, under the control of the Spirit, and therefore she follows his leadership. Sub submission is the opposite of being a jellyfish. It's absolutely knowing who you are, who God is, and who your husband is, and then it's structuring your life and your attitude and your following accordingly. Now, is this an easy call? Is it easy for a husband to love his wife? Look at verse 25. As Christ loved the church. Pretty high standard, yeah? I mean, in terms of standards, that's up there. Guys, I just have one thing to say. Love your wife. You're like, fine. Yeah, good. I'll do that. As Christ loved the church. I'm like, whoa, hold up, bro. You just went from zero to a thousand there. As Christ loved the church? Yes, that's the standard. It's an impossible standard. It's a standard we can't do in our own strength. No man is supposed to read that verse and go, oh, I am hitting this out of the park. We're supposed to read that verse and go, who is sufficient for these things? We can only hit this mark by the grace of God, by the saving, regenerating, sanctifying grace of God. That's the only way to do this. And wives, same with you. Submit to your own husbands, verse 22, as to the Lord. How are you going to do that? It's only through the Lord. It's only through divine grace. It's only by, by praying and depending upon God and asking him to change your heart such that you do indeed submit to him and want to submit to him, not just begrudgingly giving it to him, but gladly, joyfully submitting to him. Again, all this, oh boy, all this is countercultural. But so is the grace of God. You need the grace of God for this to play out. This isn't just, let's have a few counseling sessions and let's get some better dynamics straightened out and we'll get back on the rails. No, 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 no. This isn't reading a book about women being from Mars or men from Mars and women from Venus and this sort of thing and everything clicks into place. This is about the grace of God working in a home to transform it. Fifth, the woman of God trains other women of God as she matures. She's a discipler. Titus 2, 3 to 5. Older women likewise are to be reverent in behavior. Reverent in behavior. Boy, that's a way to stand out today. Not slanderers or slaves to much wine. They're to teach what is good and so train the young women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind and submissive to their own husbands that the word of God may not be reviled. Here Paul coins a Greek word, oikonergos, to capture the role of a godly woman, a worker at home, a home worker, a homemaker. It's translated different ways, but that's the Greek word that the English word, those English variations are based off of. Being a, a worker at home, as we have already touched on, is not a negative reality in the biblical mind. It's a beautiful reality. Years ago, Edith Schaefer said this about it, Francis Schaefer's wife, being challenged by what a difference her cooking and her way of serving is going to make in the family life gives a woman an opportunity to approach this with the feeling of painting a picture or writing a symphony. I love that. I love that. I hope you can find some joy in that as well. It's not drudgery. 
It's not this bad assignment that women have been given as women have been taught in many places in our secular culture. No, a woman can approach her duties in the home as if she's painting a picture or writing a symphony. In other words, as an aesthetic, what she's capturing is the aesthetic dimension of this. This is a work of beauty. You're making something beautiful in the home. What's what's the difference between a chaotic, disordered, messy home where there isn't you know, a lot of attention given or meals cooked in the home where every, everybody's flying around all the time. Nobody sees each other. Nobody sits down. Everybody's cordoned off in their different rooms with their different devices. What's the difference between that and the difference between a home where there is a godly, skilled woman building into it, making it beautiful, approaching it like it's a symphony that she is writing, <laughs> cooking good food, making it warm and a haven. What is the difference between those two things? The difference is immense. And no one wants the first when they can have the second. When you, when you are in such a home, there is a power and an appeal to it that is undeniable. There's a comfort. Again, there's a haven aspect to it. That's what Edith Schaefer is, is after. Elizabeth Elliot says much the same thing. These two voices, such good voices along these lines from years past. The routines of housework and of mothering may be seen as a kind of, and may be seen as a kind of death, and it is appropriate that they should be, for they offer the chance, Elliot says, day after day, to lay down one's life for others. They are no longer routines, routines. By being done with love and offered up to God with praise, they are thereby hallowed, made holy, as the vessels of the tabernacle were hallowed. Not because they were different from other vessels in quality or function, but because they were offered to God. And then she concludes the point. A mother's part in sustaining the life of her children and making it pleasant and comfortable is no triviality. It calls for self-sacrifice and humility, but it is the route, as was the humiliation of Jesus, to glory. Wow, that is a picture of biblical womanhood right there. That is beautiful. As one who has the opportunity to observe an absolute dynamo of a Christian woman every day in my home, in the Strand home, I can say that this is indeed a beautiful display to watch. And it does call for great levels of self-sacrifice and humility. It is not easy, but it is the route to glory. Older women then have a responsibility to model and teach the beauty of this to younger women, which means that younger women need to seek out older women too. There shouldn't be a standoff between the generations. Older women teaching this, younger women seeking this out, not seeking out secular culture and its wisdom, seeking out godly women and their wisdom. Sixth and finally, we got to wrap this up. The woman of God exudes a gentle and quiet spirit. This is what 1 Peter 3, 4 says. Let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. Peter isn't so much speaking to what we call personality. Uh, there are people and women who talk 
a lot or talk less, these sorts of things. There are people who are really outgoing or less outgoing, these kind of things. He's not, he's not speaking to those considerations. He's talking about something deeper. He's talking about a God-centered spirit. He's talking about a certain display of femininity that is receptive and even inviting of male leadership. He's talking about how women conduct themselves in the home and beyond, gentle and quiet, which is the opposite, here I say again, of how many women are encouraged to act and speak and live today, to not be gentle and quiet, to be anything but gentle and quiet. Now, Peter isn't meaning that a godly woman has no agency. He's not saying in the context of a marriage that a godly woman wouldn't raise issues uh, in her husband's life and work through those. He's not saying that a godly woman wouldn't regularly be asked to, to, to think through issues of the family's life and bring her wisdom to bear on them under the man's leadership. He's not saying any of that. He's not making Christian women a doormat. Not at all. He's not enfranchising any form of abuse. Neither is Paul. Neither is any uh, author in scripture. Nonetheless, we can't let the qualifications leave us with nothing firm, can we? There is such a thing in the biblical mind as a gentle and quiet spirit, and it's distinct in the first century from women outside the church, and it's distinct in the 21st century from women outside the church as well. Well, we've put a lot on the table. I want to conclude by saying this. There is an undeniable beauty of womanhood. What is more identified with the concept of beauty than womanhood? There's much to say in that whole discussion. God is not against physical beauty. Different women in the Old Testament and elsewhere are identified as beautiful. It's not, it's not a bad thing for a, a woman at all to see herself as a woman and clothe herself accordingly. And, and there's things to say there. But it is to say that there is a much greater beauty at play in Scripture than physical beauty, isn't there? There is spiritual beauty driven by theological truth. And this this is what we're after. We, we aren't like the culture. We don't just want our daughters to be prom queen or something like this, insofar as there even will be a prom queen in years ahead. That's not what we're after. We're not after worldly trappings or worldly success or worldly praise or worldly applause. We're after, we're after a greater beauty for our girls. We're trying to train our daughters into the spiritual and theological beauty of Christian womanhood. We're trying to help them understand what kind of girl they are when girls all around them have no idea. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, help us to do these things. Help us to train young women in a distinctly biblical way. Probably nothing feels quite so against our modern society and culture as this, training young women to be godly biblical women. Help us to do it with grace. Help us to do it with the gospel. Help us to always remember while we're teaching these principles, it's not a mere matter of principles. It's a life. It's discipleship, and it has to be all powered by the cross, the resurrection, and the Spirit's indwelling presence. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.